Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is Coach Linda Blade. And boy, did I enjoy her company. She's a very experienced coach, been working as a coach for several decades now. Over the past few years, she's been watching the erosion of women's sport at the hands of gender ideology. She has released a book about this topic titled Unsporting. You can find that at unsporting.com. In this interview, we get into her life, her experience, and just how crazy (laughs) people are being about the differences between males and females and trying to erase that And she's got some stories that really blew me away, the way that the higher-ups in these athletic associations from, you know, regional associations all the way up to the Olympics are now denying biological reality out of hand and how quickly that has happened. Again, I had just a wonderful time with her. I love her sense of humor and her energy and her tenacity, and I'm sure you will as well. Without further ado, here's Coach Linda Blade. Yeah, actually, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> that would have been so tragic. <laughs> <laughs> Recording in progress. There you go. Got it. Go. Got it. Yes. Coach Blade. Coach Blade. Yeah, here we are. Finally, Benjamin. Finally, been, we get to meet. Yeah, we've been dancing around on the internet for some time uh, following we each have. other. Learning Doing from each other. Doing the Twitter jig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's like this. Yeah, the, the, the Twitter, yahoo! <laughs> I like you. I like what you say. Uh, no, it's. I've been really enjoying your uh, podcasts, and I've been following you probably longer than you've been following me, frankly. But uh, I'm feeling very honored, Benjamin, to be on your program. Let's just put it that way. I don't think. Well, I, I'm honored for you being here because you're such a. You've been doing so much work in this in the sporting community. And in this yes. particular topic of male bodies now competing with female bodies. Yes. And you've been on the ground the whole time, alias. Yeah. I mean, that's why we call you mm-hmm. coach. Mm-hmm. I'm still coaching. I was just coaching an hour ago. So uh, just that's my main thing, man. I'm just a coach. I mean, I <laughs> I didn't think I'd be pulled into all kinds of political discussions. I didn't really think it would come to this at all. But here we are on this uh, this most uh, important of days in women uh, a day in women's uh, history that will go down in infamy uh, with Laurel Hubbard being officially admitted into the women's division and weightlifting in the Olympic Games. It's just unbelievable. And this is a male from New Zealand. Yeah. Yes, the New weightlifting. Zealand weightlifter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so enjoyed weightlifting as a young man and then decided that, you know, wanted to uh, self-identify as a woman, which is fine, except, uh, you know, shouldn't necessarily be allowed into the women's sports because still has a male body. Born with a male body, has a male body. We can all accept that uh, everybody has the right to identify in other ways. Um, But 
to actually be admitted by Olympic officials, by the New Zealand sport authorities, to allow the person themselves, allowing themselves to put other women at a disadvantage. I, I just can't imagine just the disdain for women's sports that that represents. It really is a, actually quite shocking and quite hurtful. Well, it takes the sportsmanship out of the sport in the very least. Yeah, it, it um, you know, everybody says, you know, I, I, I at one point I heard uh, a podcast, uh, Scott Adams says, anyway, Scott Adams, you know, saying, well, no, life is never fair. But, you know, honest to goodness, like the whole purpose of sport is we have parameters. You know, if you look at a football field, there are lines. There are a lot, there are end zone line, you have the sidelines, you have the yard yardage lines. If you just think you can play a sport, but just decide to take away all the lines, where where is the meaning? How do you judge anything? What? And this is to me what has happened actually right now today is, and it's been building up, of course, since the policy changed in 2015, which we can get into. Mm-hmm. But this was an important day in the sense that it finally, you know, the IOC, despite all of the chorus of women's voices from around the world saying, please, we object. We don't want uh, to see male bodies in women's sports. Um, you know, uh, it's still come to this deaf ears, I guess, at the top at the Olympic uh, Games executive level. And um, so I don't know. I just feel like. In some ways, it's weird because all of us women are fighting almost to protect the Olympic brand. And yet the officials of that sort of entity are doing everything in their power to, uh, you know, besmirch their own brand. And we're the ones trying to help protect it. And I mean, um, the meaning of what it means to be Olympian and to be in a category, you know, and Mm. we have categories for a reason. So, you know, it is uh, something else to see. The entire world of sports taking a knee to an ideology that just says biology just doesn't exist anymore, you know, and we'll just take away all those lines in sports. We're going to take all the lines away from the categories. We'll just have an open field and, you know, you can wander off 200 yards in that direction to catch a pass and nobody will care. You know, it's just to me, that's how it hits me. It just hits me like that. It's just taking away the meaning of anything. Well, Women's sport has a particular history to it Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. runs in tandem with male sport, but always kind of lagging behind a little bit. Um, Yes. Could you give us a little frame of reference of, uh, at least in North America, how and when female sport Mm -hmm. came to be? Yeah, well, I I feel like it's really been... uh, a 20th century um, thing that women have finally been given some sort of respect in sports. I mean, the modern Olympic games began, began or resumed the Olympic games resumed in um, 1896, Pierre de Coubertin of France uh, brought it back into being. And, and that was the modern Olympics. And so in that, the first uh, sort of resumption of the games, that first games in 1896 was male only. And then by 1900, they kind of allowed some women's sports in, like golf and basketball and tennis, something like that, a few, Um, maybe sailing as well. Um, So there were like three or four sports that women were invited to compete in 1900. But um, most of the sports were not included until about 1930. 1928 was when they allowed track and field in the games. 
And that's an interesting story in itself because the women were so, um, so angry that they were not being included uh, during like the World War One era, you know, starting from like between 1910 to 1920, that women actually started their own international federation of sport. And we had our own Olympic games in uh, 22, 26, 30 and 34. And so, yeah. And we had huge crowds. We were filling stadiums, just women only. But it made the IOC, the Inter- International Olympic Committee uh, men, angry that the women were also using the name International Olympics for their own Olympic Games. And so it had the intended effect because <laughs> Alicia, Alice Milot from France, who actually started the International Women's Federation, Sports Federation, she actually did that as like a kind of a, to poke the beehive, so to speak, so that the men would come to the table and say, well, we're going to include the women finally. Right. So she, she did come in. I mean, this whole thing just convinced them, the IOC uh, that, you know, women could be in the Olympics and it would be not suppressing fan interest. It would actually add to Mm. fan interest. So they made a sort of this inclusion of women's, especially the track and field in 1928, but they pulled a little bit of a fast one on the women. They actually, so the women had the full roster of events, all the events, like 22 events or whatever in our own games. But when we were allowed into the Olympics, the male, the official Olympics, men in track and field could do 22 to 24 events and women were only allowed five events. So we were actually discriminated in the sense that okay they'll let women in but we'll only be able to compete in five events and not all the whole you know the roster uh and that really made the women's federation of sports angry they felt like they were betrayed and so they continued their games until um the nazi thing came up and all sports just pretty much stopped and then after world war ii when the games resumed, then it was, there was no more women's federation of sport that kind of went away because now women were all included in the Olympics. There were more and more events that women could do. Um, But, you know, even then, Benjamin, um, you think about something like the marathon that a lot of recreational women runners do the Boston marathon, New York marathon, Mm -hmm. all kinds of road running. Women were not quote allowed to run the Olympic marathon until 1984. So imagine it taking 84 years from, you know, 1900, the first time women were allowed in the games. So 1900 to 1984, 84 years to be allowed to even run something like the marathon. Um, and so, you know, after that, so the now by 2016, um, the number of women's events and men's events now are almost equal, except okay. for the decathlon. Um, and um, so... Basically, the, it's weird for all of us females who care about women who care about sport is that in an age where they just about reached parity, and this was around two, the 2000, suddenly they let the males come into the women's sports just when we've reached parity, you know? Oh, wow. um, and, and it didn't take 84 years to allow the trans-identified males in. It happened almost overnight. Yeah. So like when we want something... Oh, gosh, man, it's got to be lobbying and reviews and studies. And is this proper and 84 years and then somehow overnight, almost like in a couple of years, um, males can self-identify into women's sport without any reviews, like no studies, no, like just do it. Um, 
which is the thing that kind of what we're saying is why wouldn't you not study this? Why would you make such a drastic policy without due care and attention, right? And um, undue care and attention. So basically, I, I feel like the fix is in somehow. I don't know. We hmm. How can we help but not think that there was some sort of other agenda, you know, somehow at play behind the scenes? I can't point my finger on what it is. But why would you risk destroying your Olympics brand on something so ridiculous and so obvious as this? Hmm. I don't understand it. I wonder if they have overplayed their hand and you can Hmm. interpret that pronoun however you wish. (laughs) Because once people start seeing this, isn't it going to be like, how, how is the whole world supposed to deny the reality of their eyes. I mean, we're having a hard enough time doing that in North America, in the West. (laughs) 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 I don't know, Benjamin, like I would have thought even when it first came into being, so let's talk about the trans and sport policy development. So it kind of started in late nineties. And then by 2000, 2001, there was this quietly, the IOC put in the rule allowing transsexuals so the males had to actually have you know, they had to have lived as a female like for years and had the surgery uh so surgical removal of the testes and all that and then they would be allowed to compete in the women's events so that was kind of put in there and you know logically not a lot of guys want to submit themselves to that treatment did it uh, happen and, yeah it did were there happen there were notable yeah, yeah. Well, there, there wasn't, there were, in some sports, there were males, uh, and like, um, there was a Canadian uh, cyclist uh, named Kristen Worley, who wanted to go into the women's cycling. Um, and so since Kristen was one of the first sort of people wanting to get into the Olympics, um, had to be subject to, according to the rule, and the IOC had to be subject to um a complete review of a you know panel asking questions and and if you read uh Worley's book which you know I'm not trying to promote that book but um I'm trying to promote my book Unsporting um <laughs> you can find it at unsporting.com and it's uh, there's some stories in there about this but the thing is um Worley was so angry that she she or he, he, but with the, you know, identifying now trans woman, she had to submit to this humiliating um, meeting where their, their identity was questioned and checked out. And that Worley went on uh, basically on a sort of on an angry, um, anger filled trail of fighting for policies in Canada taking uh, the International Cycling Union to the Human Rights Court. Uh, Then the IOC got involved. And Worley's interesting, Worley, I agree with Worley in a certain way. One of the arguments Worley made was that the initial policy, even for the transsexuals around 2000, um, was not really based in any kind of science. They just made these sort of guidelines. And Worley says that's not based in science because it, because trans, trans women, like transsexual women, like Worley are already women. 
Whereas I disagreed with them because on the other side, they're not, they're not female athletes. So, I mean, we, we both think the IOC made a big mistake, but in different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Worley believed, and as Worley tried to train, because Worley has a male body and needs testosterone, having had no testosterone anymore because no more testes were there, um, found they could not actually train properly for the even for women cycling because anytime they went out for a training run, they were depleted and they couldn't, they, it took so long to recover from training. So Worley said, I need an exemption to be able to take a some degree of testosterone so I can even train at all. Hmm. So they needed a doping exemption because they had no testes. They needed a doping exemption. Wow. <laughs> so instead of saying, look, clearly I have a different kind of body where I actually do need higher levels of testosterone than women. Um, and so obviously there's something wrong with this picture. I shouldn't be in the women's division trying to do this instead of going that way. Then by the time it got through all these human rights legislations, by 2015, the IOC just threw up its hands and said, well, okay, if we're going to give you exemptions, we're just going to throw the door open. You can self ID, just make sure your testosterone is down to at least 10 nanomoles per liter and everything will be good. So it was all with respect to the needs of this one or two individuals trying to mm. sort of petition to be in women's sports without ever asking the question, do women, do the female athletes really want this to happen? Is this proper for the women? What, what if a female athlete seeks a doping exemption by identifying as a trans woman and saying, well, I identify as a trans woman, so I need synthetic hormones in order to... That woman, that woman would be, that woman would be punished by because of doping. Even if she rules. got the exemption because she now identifies no longer as a woman. Let's. But a trans I mean, it, I don't know. Maybe that's happened. I don't. I haven't heard of it. But if you, as a female athlete, take testosterone, uh, synthetic testosterone, and it's not, you know, your own biology, and it's at a higher level, hmm. then you are doping, and you will be sanctioned. So. so yeah. It's not it's so bizarre because women's, you know, the maximum amount of testosterone most normal women produce, you know, is in like maximum two nanomole per liter, 2.4 maybe at max. And yet the male uh, person who's identifying as a woman only has to get their levels down to just 10 nanomoles per liter, which is still a huge amount more than women are allowed to take or have. Yeah. So even when you're trying to include um, the male body in and trying to say, well, we'll reduce the testosterone level, make it fair as if as if women are just men without testosterone, which is not true at all. Um, even if you were going to use just the testosterone as your benchmark for fairness, um, you know, that's completely different story, a different argument, too. But I mean, even on that level, um, when World Rugby went to look at their policies, so, you know, all the sports were trying to follow this Olympic rule of, from 2015, just live as a woman for a year, self-identify, whatever, don't have to have surgery, just bring, make sure your hormones remain below the 10. Uh, and of course, that's also self-monitored 10. I mean, who knows what they're doing in between the testing? I mean, they could have perfectly natural levels of hormone between the testing and they've been, they've benefited from hormones all their life. So they've already had a different body, um, bigger mm. lungs, you know, heart, whatever. Um, so basically the IOC allowing this, then all sports tried to comply. And then also, you know, obviously it makes sense to me that world rugby would be 
by 2018, 19 would be the first four say, now hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, you got these bodies that are male bodies colliding with women in a contact sport. Let's just take a look at this because this we have to review for safety, especially what's going on. And so uh, Ross Tucker on, on, you can find him on Twitter and all, he's very good science of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he writes a lot about this, but um, Dr. Emma Hilton, Fair Play for Women, there was a lot of people who were brought to the table. This is the first time in February 2020, just before COVID lockdown, mm-hmm. there was this meeting where they actually did convene um, to, you know, finally look at the final sort of have a have trans and and the women's sports uh, proponents. Everybody was at the table and they did this thorough science review of all the studies in the world that have been done with like pre-hormone uh, therapy, post-hormone therapy. And not a single study, Benjamin, showed, not a single study showed that if you reduce testosterone in a male, it drops their advantage anywhere near to the female level. Like it, it, it does not mitigate anything in terms of the sports advantage um, or performance advantage. So based on that, and based on the fact that, that in their projections, you know, you can figure out the physics of bodies colliding and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, at least 20 to 30% increase in possibility of a serious injury to the neck and backs and heads of female athletes. If they're in a game with a male in a rugby game match with a male athlete. So on -hmm. that basis, um, by October 2020, last fall, um, World Rugby made the faithful, I think it was a good decision, um, to say like at, le- at the elite level, World Rugby would not permit a male body, regardless of how they identify, into the women's game because it would just be too risky um, insurance-wise and everything else. Um, and so, you know, of course, world rugby came under enormous, enormous attack from hmm. the individual rugby unions. Cause like rugby Canada spoke out against it, rugby USA, rugby Australia, everybody on the ground level wants to still virtue signal and, and say, no, 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 no. We believe in inclusion. We're not going to follow the world rugby protocol and rule, but world rugby and world rugby, just to give a nod to their union so they wouldn't have a complete um, revolt, I guess, on their hands. They had the added comment in their ruling that, yeah, so at local and national levels within each country, you can do whatever you want. You can include males if you want, but internationally, you cannot have a male body in women's rugby. And so, you know, here we are. So in Canada, it's still celebrated. Oh, yay, let's put a you know, self-identifying male into women's rugby. And, and I mean, it's just incredible. Like, I don't know how that helps globally, because if you have too many male bodies, let's say at the local level or national level, and the women kind of disappear because they're getting hurt, then how many women to make it back then to the senior international? How many athletes have you not weeded out by the time they get to the international level, you're basically depleting your talent pool. Mm-hmm. And so it really makes women, you know, it's probably going to really have an impact in the long run. If this continues making world rugby women in the world, uh, the women's game look more and more pathetic. Cause you're not, you're not allowing all the talent to come through. It just, it, it defies like all, 
forms of common sense. So with regards to competitive sports where the person is going for time, uh, everybody's mm -hmm. like running or doing something for time. Time itself is a physical, stable construct. Mm -hmm. And we're all trying to get the best time. But mm -hmm. the body isn't a stable how we get to the best time is not stable. That That's uh, subjective and it's all based on identity. When mm -hmm. you're going in contact sports where we're competing mm -hmm. against each other, each other's bodies, mm -hmm. how do you ignore – how do you ignore that? I don't know. And that's what – that's the thing that really, really baffles me, Benjamin, because I don't <laughs> get it. I don't get how – if you're a sports official – and you just would imagine the situation on the field, how could you pretend like this is okay? The minute a person thinks or wants to believe they're the opposite sex, biological sex, that every one of the billions of cells in their body just suddenly turn from XX to XY or whatever chromosomal thing you have, you have to change that, that the bone suddenly got smaller, that the heart suddenly got, you know, the lung capacity got smaller, the heart, is now as small as a woman's heart, mm -hmm. your muscle mass is suddenly magically just with a thought, um, just the same as any woman. And then, you know, you're talking about shapes. And so, I mean, for me, I want, I, I can't believe, cause I had listened to like, I was on a panel, I was listening to a panel about five days ago with Rachel McKinnon, now Veronica Ivy. I mean, still celebrated in Canada as an expert and, you know, on terms of sport categories, um, and so I'm sitting in this, this office, just like watching this panel because we're not allowed to say anything. Um, and so, you know, like chats turned off on the zoom and all that, but like, I'm watching Rachel McKinnon, who has a PhD in philosophy, um, saying, and he puts up, uh, this person, uh, he, she, whatever puts up, uh, uh, uh photo of a small gymnast and a large tall, tall high jumper and basically makes a point because of the height variations you know there's so much human diversity it's all blurred and males should be able to go in because there's a huge amount of diversity but completely ignoring that there's diversity within the category that certain amount of diversity within a category is acceptable that's why we have winners and losers there are there has to be i mean you, they're not mm -hmm. we're not robots we're not exactly the same um but essentially arguing that because gymnasts are small and high jumpers are tall, men should be in women's sports. I mean, because, and using height. So basically what's happened here is the trick of using a unidimensional thing, yeah. like a unidimensional thing like height. Okay. Yeah. When to do, to, to represent the entire morphology. So when we say humans are sexually dimorphic, which they are, there's 6,000 variables or more where there's a difference between being male or females. Like you can actually measure in biology, you know, whether it's at the cellular level, at the, you know, the structural level, anatomical, the joint, the, the actual um, uh, mechanics of how the joints work. Um, like I know little, little boys always can do more chin-ups than little girls. I've seen it all my life as a coach. I mean, there's just different structural differences. So, so basically mm -hmm. the easiest way that I can describe it when you talk about morphology, the, the analogy that I, I keep using, because it probably is the clearest to make, is um, stock car racing versus Formula One. Okay. So, you know, this Formula One car is the sleek car with the big, you know, 
uh, foil and, 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 and the stock cars go around in these circles. And, and basically they're completely, the reason they're in a different category is because the vehicles have a different design. They're different morphology, Mm -hmm. right? So what McKinnon is arguing is essentially because a stock car and a formula one might be the same length, they should be in the same category, Yeah, which doesn't make any sense at all because one dimension like length does not make these two vehicles the same design. It'd be like saying, oh, all the houses have the same doorway, like the door, all houses have the same height of the doorway. That means all houses are the same. Like they would all cost the same. They would all, yeah. you can call a little bungalow mansion, mansion a bungalow, just because the doorway is the same size. So if the same size, well, there you go. One dimension thing you look at, and that that represents the entire difference in shape or size or morphology. So, I, you know, it, I don't buy it. There's such a breakdown in critical thinking or maybe not. I was just watching a video. This is unrelated, but somehow related of Ibram X. Kendi. He was asked to yeah. define racism and he used racism to define racism. You talked about the importance of defining racism, but I, but I, unless I missed it, which is possible, I didn't, I didn't hear your personal definition. Is there, is there one that you would offer us? Like, how do you define racism? Sure. So racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> sure. A, a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. And anti-racism is a pretty simple using the same terms. Anti-racism is a collection of anti-racist policies leading to racial, anybody want to take a guess? Equity that are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Anyway, so that's just one example of these people going up on stage and everybody just having to mouth the words that are in polite society or something. It's a total breakdown of something very big in our ability Mm -hmm. to collectively make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you go into the Islamic world and I I did a lot of coaching in Islamic countries, which was my claim to fame in the nineties, I'd go as a Western woman and put on my hijab and go into Tehran and go into different Muslim countries to teach women how to coach girls. And, you know, everybody says, inshallah, like God willing, it's, it's just a, it's like there's mantras that we use that are religious in orientation or, or, um, you know, every, we do it, God willing, like uh, we say things all the time, or even things like, um, good morning. Like we don't really mean, like, we don't even know what that means. We just have these things we say and they become part of our lexicon. Um, but it's somehow this is, they're trying to get this across where we're just as say trans women are women. Well, why then would you call them trans? And you say trans women equals women, doesn't that mean then every woman is also a trans woman? So then why wouldn't I be heard if if I'm a trans woman? You know, like it just, the whole thing just breaks down. Um, and, uh, you know, it, and yet it keeps I on proceeding. Been, yeah. And, and so I feel like for me, the bewilderment is actually the fact that I've had to learn about all this ide- ideology when my backstory is just, I mean, maybe we can get into my backstory because all I was doing was just coaching. I was just coaching. I was just on the ground every day coaching. I was NCAA All-American in track and field, hip tap on, 
If anybody remembers Jackie Joyner Kersey, uh, she was the American champion. Um, and I was in some of the meets with her. I was, I was, you know, of her generation, not nearly as good as she was, but I did compete with her internationally. Um, and so we were all in the heptathlon and, and then I retired in 1988 by the nineties. I thought I was, you know, I have my PhD in kinesiology. So I got that in 1994. Um, and I thought I would be a university professor, but I happened to be married to a wonderful man who is an agronomist and who wanted to work with African farmers. So we went over to Africa. He was doing his work with McGill university, but, uh, you know, postdoc. And then he got hired on by this UN affiliated organization uh, that does research in agriculture for all of the sub-Saharan region of Africa. And he really enjoyed what he was doing. And I really admired his work and I had no problem being there. And in fact, I can coach athletes anywhere. And my first faculty position, frankly, was in Biro University in Kano in Northern Nigeria, where Boko Haram now is active. And I was teaching, I was teaching biomechanics, um, nutrition, um, exercise physiology, and, okay. and basic biology and those sorts of things. The dean said, well, the one thing you must do if you're going to teach in this department would be to take on a practical sports coaching session as well. So teaching the phys ed teachers to be. And of course, I said, well, I was a heptathlete. I know all the sports and track and field, pretty much all the events. And so I could just teach them the foundational sort of characteristics of movement, whether it's run, jump or throw. And I can go out and teach them track and field athletics. And since I'd only been an athlete in the NCAA, and then I was Canadian champion as well, but. I, I had only been an athlete. I wasn't a coach. So I actually wrote to the international well, IAAF, which is now World Athletics, based in Monaco. And I said, well, here I am. I'm in, you know, northern Nigeria, south of the Sahara Desert. I need help. I just do have coaching manuals. How do I teach coaching to these university students? And the director was very delighted. The director from Monaco was quite delighted to hear from me. And this is a whole different story. I don't think I want to get into it. But he had been my coach when I was a kid in Bolivia. I grew up in South America. My parents were uh, Bible translators. So he was there when I was a kid. I was on the Bolivian national team. He was my national coach. And I didn't realize this guy in Monaco, who was head of all global coaching development, I was writing to him 20 years later saying, I need to help these uh, Nigerian you know, university students who would become the coaches. So he said, listen, I'll tell you what, Linda, if you hire a national person, like an international like coach to go into a country and coach, then the minute he leaves, the program falls apart. So his idea, because of his experience with me in Bolivia and all the national team members in Bolivia had this you know, thing where if you develop a course where you teach the coaches of each country how to coach, then you can leave and the sport continues to thrive because then people know how to coach. Well, this was perfect because he had just come out with his first textbook. He sent me the textbook to Nigeria, and I was teaching this methodology of coaching track and field to the guys on the field. And it was all men because it was Islamic. My welcome to faculty dinner was, you know, I got my plate of food, and then they put me in a separate hut than all the other guys just to welcome me to faculty. So it was kind of interesting. (laughs) But... um, Anyway, it was very successful. I was able to teach everything, and um, they were very respectful in general. Then Bjorn, this g- German gentleman in Monaco, called me again, and he said, listen, we've got this global system of teaching coaches how to coach, and we train our lecturers, and we don't have female lecturers. I need female lecturers to go into Islamic countries. So 
that's how I got trained. They, he sent me over to the training center in Nairobi, Kenya. I had to survive the 14-day boot camp. And um, it was such a severe boot camp for coaches that probably about 50%. He said, I'm not going to guarantee you pass, but if you pass, you're going to get a lot of work. So I passed. I passed the 14-day boot camp of training. They gave me a couple guys from the Kenyan army and I had to show that I could coach them. Um, and hmm. so <laughs> it was just funny. But anyway, I got, I did get the diploma. I was the first uh, female on the African continent to get that coaching diploma from the IAAF, like the lecturers. And so then uh, they just started sending me all over the world. Like they sent me to Sri Lanka to, but then also to Tehran to teach the Iranian coaches, women, how to coach the girls. It was a wonderful thing. And then I moved back to Canada. My dad, my husband's father passed away. We came back to Edmonton, Alberta. I couldn't find a professorship. We were in a very um, sort of situation where the public expenditure was being curtailed and there were actually no professorships. I taught a few sort of university transfer credit courses in phys ed and kinesiology. But then I got as a fellow that had been working with me on my PhD, he ended up being here in Edmonton working with the Edmonton Oilers hockey team. He asked me a few questions about speed development, explosive development, how you do that in track, how do you do the drills? And I went out to the field and I just showed him and I said, this is what you do. If you want to get faster, this is one of the things you got to do, you know, over here. And I, so I, I went through some of the drills with him. He goes, Linda, stop thinking. You can do some research in growth and development because my area was physical anthropology, looking at size, shape, proportion, and composition of growing children and uh, sexual dimorphism in growing children. He said, stop. You can stop doing that because you're going to make a lot more money helping athletes to become better athletes in their sport. Hmm. And because track and field is the foundational sport of all other sports, you run, you jump, you throw. Like if you're in basketball, you run, you jump, you throw. But there's tactics that you add on to those basic fundamental characteristics. And so he got me in working with some of the hockey players, uh, liked what he saw, liked the improvement they were making. And then there was a lady sitting there who was also involved in the de figure skater development. She says, no, my figure skaters need to jump higher. Come over here with me. And so mm -hmm. as we started going along, every single time I took an athlete from a different sport to get them to improve their basic biomotor capacities, like explosive jumping higher like vertical jump explosive speed acceleration coordination all those things that make an athlete a better athlete i was able to take talk to the coaches and the parents if it was a young athlete or you know whatever the athletes themselves if they were professional and just find out what is missing from your physical repertoire that i can actually yeah. help you with and so then they would just do whatever on field or on ice stuff. They would be sent to me afterwards to work on the dry land. Like even for swimmers, it ended up I worked with divers, swimmers. So by the time I'm sitting here now, I've worked with athletes in 17 different sports. Okay. And from professional, beginner to professional. Okay. So in that time, I get elected. Finally, by 2014, I get elected as president of track and field in this province of Alberta, which is a state of Canada. So I'm now president of track and field, uh, Athletics Alberta, and I'm going to a national meeting in 2018. And all of a sudden, I'm at the table and I'm hit with a policy on trans inclusion. And... <laughs> I mean, I have had hundreds, thousands of athletes, males and females, nobody in between, males and females. My, my research was on sexual dimorphism and growing children and, and the, the nexus between your body proportions and your, your functionality in sport, all of this stuff. 
And I'm looking at the statement thinking, this is batshit crazy. Like what in the world? Like we're supposed to say a guy can come along and self-identify into females, women's sports and just voila, let him in. I mean, it, it defies everything I ever learned, like whether it was in university, whether it was in science, whether it was on the ground being so busy on the literally in the trenches of sport. And I looked, Benjamin, I looked around the table at my colleagues because this was at the national meeting. And I said, you're kidding, right? Like, you're kidding, but you're kidding. And they all looked down at their hands and shrugged their shoulders as if, what are you going to do? Well, <laughs> that was my peak moment because that's when you fall down into Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole because you're looking at these people who are literally responsible for your sport policy. The very people who would say not a, not a drop of doping should be allowed. And now you're saying that somebody who, you know, like if, if, if you take a drug, it's like maybe maximum 9% advantage, 10% advantage. But if you allow a male body into a woman's sports, it's up to maybe 50 to 160% advantage. Like, what? Like, you're saying this is good and doping is bad? Like, why? what is going on? And that was really, honest to goodness, that was the first time I, I was just like, why? And so then I asked the guy, like, I figured out, like, where that document had come from. It was a document written and pushed on Canadian associations of sport by an entity called the Canadian center for ethics in sports. <laughs> okay. Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian center for ethics in sport. <sighs> and, and the, the, it's even funnier when you realize where this CCES Canadian center for ethics and sports, even funnier when you find out where it came from. So I don't know if you were old enough to see the rivalry, uh, Benjamin, between Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson. Uh, Carl Lewis was the American sprinter, and this was like an 88 in my era. And it was like a huge rivalry. Carl Lewis was American champion in many, many different sprints and long jump. And there was this rivalry with the Canadian sprinter, Ben Johnson. And Ben Johnson won the Seoul Olympics in 1988, um, but it turned out that he had been doping. So he got disqualified. So that was the big, like it was worldwide global scandal at the time. And um, push come to shove by 2003, like all, all through the 90s, there was this Canadian national shame that our sprinter had cheated to get the gold medal. And we had all these different organizations that cropped up to ensure fairness and, and ethics in Canadian sport. And all these different governmental entities finally you know, morphed into this one entity called the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport. And that was the, that was the one anti-doping, like that was the main um, sort of organization, government bureaucracy thing, you know, entity that was in charge of making sure Canadians would be uh, ethical and, and fair in their dealings in sport. And they stuck to the mandate until somewhere around 2014 or 15, where all of a sudden, if you look at their... Um, you know, their annual statements from this organization online, their, their annual review and statements, they never mentioned trans and sport until about 2014. All of a sudden, they write this document that yeah. says that complete self-ID 
And it's even more extreme than the IOC. Male athletes who self-identify as, as women should never be allowed to, to have to take a hormone. They should not have to have surgery. And they can identify as a male in one sport and as a female. Not like they can go back wait, and forth. Wait, what, so wait, what? Wait, wait, they, wait. They they can be. <laughs> they can identify as a male and then mm-hmm. identify as a female. Yeah, like, and that, they can flip back and forth. Okay, so this is. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I go through this again. I'm, I'm promoting my book, but th- yeah. I go through all of that in the book because that's that's what really caused me to be, in, you know, um, yeah. really like in, in fact, and can, if you can believe it, the Canadian equivalent to the NCAA, which is Canadian U Sport Canada, U Sport mm-hmm. University Sport has adopted that. So literally a guy could be playing men's volleyball in the fall or wherever they play in the probably in the winter. And they could go out and do uh, women's high jump then the very next season. And then they could go back. I mean, that's even so much more extreme than the IOC. And the, the thing that even makes it more um, maddening and bewildering is that as I'm involved with national meetings at the table in sport policy here in Canada, I'm still president since 2014 um, in around, I think it was that December of 2018, after I became a little bit going bonkers, like seeing this thing, yeah. we had our semi-annual AGM in Vancouver, uh, at a conference center in Vancouver in, in the December of 2018. So it was about maybe six months later and in walks, you know, part of our <laughs> agenda was special presentation from Canadian women in sport. And this is like the organization that also gets government money to support and protect women's sports. Okay. So Canadian Center for Women, you know, the, the Canadian Women in Sport, and they they trot this woman in, and she gives us an entire lecture that involved the gender-bred person and why it doesn't matter if men are 12%, like if there's a 12% difference that we should all be kind and accept men into women's sports. And I'm sitting there in this room looking at her, knowing that we're in a sport in track and field where – Point one or point zero one seconds, or you know, percent difference in a race would make be the difference between making the final and not being there at all. And she's saying a twelve percent difference between males and females in sport is really quite irrelevant. Uh, and um, being nice, the coaches, is more important. it was unbelievable. So by the end of that year, I'm saying to myself, the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport created a policy that is what you know, just crazy. And now they've actually captured the Canadian women in sport, the only organization that can speak on behalf of women that actually get paid to speak on behalf of women. Yeah. And I, I'm on my own. Like I just realized women in Canada, we're just on our own. We're on absolutely on our own. How do you even Benjamin, how do you even argue with, with somebody that I called? So what I did is I called the CEO, Paul Melia of Canadian center for ethics and sport in the May of 2018. And I call him up and I say, Paul, I'm reading your policy here. Can you please explain to me what is going on here? How you came to this conclusion that this should be correct? How this doesn't hurt women? And all he could, all he could tell me was, 
we we ha- have a value of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And he kept, just kept he just kept spewing that out like inshallah. And I just kept saying, but Paul, like, stop. I said, stop. Don't you mm. understand that if you include a male body in a woman's sport, it is You're not inclusive. Women. You exclude. Don't you understand it's not safe? It's not equitable. It's not diverse. You're actually making sure that sport is only male. How are you? What are you even saying? No, we believe in equity, diversity, inclusion. He wouldn't argue with me. He just kept throwing this thing at me. And so I finally just said, so here I said, okay, so I said to, I said, Paul, I said, I know I'm not getting through to you. I said, but I just need to know one more thing before I hang up. Is this actually the law in Canada? Because I really didn't know. I said, is this actually the law? Like that sport bodies like my, my association have to literally abide by this by law? Or is this just your strong recommendation? Please explain that to me. And he said, well, it's not the law yet. So when he said not the law yet, a panic happened to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because like, believe me, like, this was in the context, Benjamin, of you remember how Jordan Peterson had spoken out of against Bill C-16. I was just going to bring that up. And that's just about pronouns. Yeah. But the pronouns were related to the actual bill, which actually said you're not allowed to discriminate in Canada on the basis of gender identity and gender expression. Mm-hmm. And when we saw, I mean, everybody in Canada knows how that was steamrolled over everybody without it, proper consultation. And even somebody like Jordan Peterson had spoken out against it, but it became law anyway. Mm-hmm. So when I was listening, I was having this conversation with Mr. Melia, knowing how the government works here in under Trudeau and the liberals that okay. they don't consult. They just steamroll over everybody. So I thought, okay. well, I don't know how much, I mean, let's face it. I'm not, I'm not only saying something partisan because even the conservatives in Canada and everybody supports this whole business. So it's not just the liberals, it's, but they just happen to be in government. And their example was Bill C-16, which just steamrolled over everybody, irrespective of the warnings of Peterson. And, and without um, any accountability, they still haven't released the impact. Yeah, they haven't released the gender-based analysis, the GBA. And they promised one of the virtue signaling things that, that this government said. <laughs> accountability, what, transparency. Yeah. And yet they're being the worst possible, um, instantiating the worst possible policies and laws without adequate uh, consultation as they promised they would. And we're trying to get them to release it. And I'm sure you interviewed Heather Ann and she was trying to get them to release it. Um, And so basically, um, we're still not anywhere. We're still not anywhere. And and we have never given been given an answer as to why that happened. Mm-hmm. And frankly, um, Bill C-16 is the reason why this is happening in sports, because whether you're a prison warden or a middle manager in sports, your interpretation of that law is, forced, is causing you to say men should be forced into women's spaces. The law does not say that. The law only says you should respect and not bully people who identify or express in different ways. It's the people in between who interpret this law, the people with power, who then take it to the nth degree and say, well, that means 
We yeah. should put a rapist in a women's cell with her. Like, yeah. I mean, nobody yeah. said that that was what you had to do. That is that it. One thing doesn't compute to that. Like, you can say I. No, I think completely... it does. I think it follows. I think it just it naturally follows. Once the government starts to regulate manners, yeah, then the most authoritarian sort of manner imposition is the safest. <clears throat> You, you just you abide by the law. You just make True. it as authoritarian True. as possible. So once yeah. you let the government in to your mouth mm -hmm. and into your behavior, mm -hmm. they get to control That's it. That's true. And, and yeah, I can see that. Strongest... Well, we've experienced. Yeah. yeah. We've experienced that in Canada. I mean, that's what exactly happened. Yeah. And it's because we're nice. It's because we're trying to be nice. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that Canadians, most Canadians who adopt this without thinking are thinking they're being nice. But they don't understand the disaster it is for women, for children who are transitioning to, to to prisoners, like to everybody, people in rape shelters. I mean, they don't understand what's really happening. And we're not allowed to say it because it gets stifled. They don't let us be heard. So back to Paul Melia and the CCES uh, in sport, when he said, well, it's not the law yet. I'm thinking, well, how much time do I have? Do I have a year? Do I have two years? How much time before there's a, a law that explicitly states that if you, like if somebody in my position will not allow a male athlete to compete with female athlete, I could go to prison by saying that or by doing that. How much, much time? So when I couldn't make any headway with like the, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion people who were just saying this mantra, no matter what I said to them, that's pretty much when I went on Twitter. That's actually really when I mm. went on Twitter because okay. I felt like I had no, I had yeah. absolutely no recourse to find other people who felt the same as me. Yeah. 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 You're totally right? completely isolated. All your professional yeah. colleagues yeah. are, I, you're isolated from them because they're accepting this ideology. Well, they're afraid. They won't say they're, they're they, I know yeah. they agree with me. I know they agree with me. Yeah. But they don't want to dare say anything. Yeah. Right? So this is where we are. We're in a state exactly as Dr. Peterson and Gad Saad and, and all these good people, at, you know, Megan Murphy, the women from PDF Quebec, everybody who sat in that testimony at the Senate and the Canadian Senate to warn about what would happen with Bill C-16, they warned about these things happening. And, and I'm living it. And there's nothing I can say because everything I say is is mm. couched as being hateful. Yeah. Or, and you know, because I was kind of nobody. You know, I I wasn't high up on the ladder. I I'm just a coach from the ground. I feel like I got by with saying a lot of things without any, you know, that a lot of higher up people couldn't say. Mm -hmm. I was kind of in the sweet spot, you know, actually, Benjamin, because. I'm almost sixty, so I have had my turn. If they want to cancel me, you know. I can risk getting booted, right? Like, and my, I mean, my individual one-on-one -on -one clients, they're not going to fire me. If somebody would fire me, like if an athlete that I'm consulting with privately as a private consultation, if they would say, well, you're a bigot, I don't want to train with you anymore. Well, then fine. Like the next one in line, come on. Like, cause I have mm -hmm. a backlog of requests. So I don't know how they can actually truly cancel me. Um, well, they, they can, can just me. ignore you or very subtly uh, just not let your words go out. Yeah. And that's what's been happening. That's, you know, what? this is a, also a landmark day. 
not only is it a landmark day because Laurel Hubbard is now officially going to be in the Olympics, it's a landmark day because this is the first day after three years of speaking out on this that I got a call from CBC to actually make a statement. The Canadian Broadcasting. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation finally, like the main one of the mainstream media, finally asked me for a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the meantime, it's been all these sort of, you know, um, like and- I love the podcast, long form, uh, private, right. like me writing a article in the Post Millennial, me doing my book, um, just just doing my own thing and being completely ignored. Imagine a book going number one on Amazon, which it has. And not a single call or a single peep from anybody mm-hmm. in the Canadian national, um, in the mainstream media, like complete stifling of this topic. Fear, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of it is just fear um, from the powers that be, that you don't want to entertain any kind of sort of story that doesn't go along with the ideology of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable to actually see yeah. The um, you know, what I feel has become a social religion, like a, a, a really a mainstream um, social religion. And, you know, it's we don't pick athletes on the basis of religion. Like I don't again, we don't say like, I don't know if I said that to you before, but you don't say to an athlete, okay, so all of the Christians are going to run in this race and all of the Muslims over here and the Jews over there. Like we don't do that in sport. We don't say, Oh, Democrats race Republicans because of your ideology, you get to identify into a different kind of race or or like competition. Mm -hmm. So we don't do that with skin color either. We don't do it with skin color color either. So my point is um, the beauty of sport is that we can leave all of those other identities, like whether you're a father, mother, cousin, Catholic, uh, Democrat, uh, you know, wokester, whatever it is you are in terms of your ideology. Mm-hmm. The whole point of sport is you leave that baggage on the sidelines and you compete with your biological body. And and that's the beauty of sport. It's not the thing, you know, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it's, it's not so it's hard apart to- from that. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's not so hard, Benjamin, to figure out that you can have have it both ways. You can I you can absolutely respect and not bully somebody on the basis of how they express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, honor the biology based, um, you know, provisions under what we have in Canada, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms yeah. says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, biological sex. So in Canada, what's what's going on is I think we have this conflict. We have a conflict of, of what's in the charter, which is sex-based rights. And then the newer legislation, which is the human rights legislation of Bill C-16. And those two things are kind of in conflict. It's more about gender and it's more about how you identify. And so who, why would it, why would somebody think that if we say sports, you know, males always compete in the male division, no matter how they identify or dress or wear or express, and females always compete in the female category, no matter what they say or how they look. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that disrespecting their other kinds of ideology or things in their head? It doesn't. It doesn't. And you know what's really so, so, so alarming, which kind of already came out before this IOC decision on Laurel Hubbard, is that there's an article that 
was put out on June, I think it was about June 4th by the International Olympic Committee mm -hmm. on, it's called Unity and Diversity. The IOC emphasizes inclusion in sport during LGBTQ Pride Month. Yeah. And this in this document, they reveal that they're going to trend more towards the Canadian CCES uh, approach to inclusion after the Olympic Games. Which so is, this wacky Canadian, like, identify any way you want. Based on whatever sport. Or yeah, you or whatever. Yeah. Like, so it, you just what you whatever. say. It, there okay. should be no hormones involved, no requirements whatsoever. Whatever you yeah. say you but are. But you, can, you, you should... can switch your identity based on the I sport. don't know if that's what they're going to do, but it sure sounded like they adopted the CCES uh, hmm. uh, guidelines. Like, it, well, it, they made that language. Let's turn that up. What do you think if men just dominate the Olympics? What niche, yeah. and this is kind of a, just a interesting thought experiment. Where would men, yeah. women end up dominating? Like what sport do you think men would never be able to compete? Like figure Rhythmic skating? Rhythmic gymnastics. Rhythmic gymnastics. Why? Because of the flexibility. So of all of the biomotor abilities, so you take, when we see biomotor abilities, you're talking about strength, speed, cardiovascular, uh, all of the, there's a whole list of abilities in sport called biomotor abilities. And so there's power and there's coordination and there's um, uh, balance and flexibility. So flexibility is probably the only biomotor ability where women have an outright advantage. And, and interestingly enough, I didn't know much about rhythmic gymnastics, but when my, when my, my daughter, when she was a teen, now she's in university, but when my daughter was a teen, she entered rhythmic gymnastics. So I'd sit there and watch. It was like a judge sport. I, I couldn't make heads or tails out of how mm. they judged it. But, you know, it's where they, they throw the hoops around and the ribbons and stuff okay. while they're doing um, various moves. Very, very demanding. But there are girls. Like, I literally sat there in, in astonishment, Benjamin. I watched some little girls, some of them, a lot of them were these really tiny, petite Asian girls, especially like just like in the Chinese circus, who could bend their back to the point where they could get their shoulders to touch their butt. Like they could literally backbend till their shoulders touch their butt. That, that, you know what, seriously, that would break a man's back. Huh. So I don't see how a man with, with the male um, firmness of the joints yeah. And all of that and not have the, you know, the hips and women are flexible because women's hips are very pliable because of yeah. the ability to give birth. And they're very, they have a lot more flexibility, expandability. Um, and so I don't see a guy being able to do the, the really beautiful rhythmic moves and, you know, the contortions mm -hmm. that are um, demanded in rhythmic gymnastics. So, I would say there was a few things like that where a male body and they don't have men's rhythmic gymnastics. They absolutely don't. And that just tells you that it's probably almost impossible. Hmm. Um, but any other sport that requires um, speed, power, strength, cardiovascular ability, yeah. um, even sort of a reaction time. I think men have a slightly yeah. faster reaction time. I don't know why that would be like if, a, if it's a fine motor skill, I think women can be very reactive. But, you know, even look at EA, like you look at the electronic games that the IOC is now, yeah. um, I mean, there's mostly boys. Like, I don't know if it's because yeah. boys spend more time playing video games. Well, the, the reaction even time just, is insane for competitive 
sports. It's just, it's insane. Yeah. Like, even like so, Rubik's Cube, the reaction yeah, yeah. time of a Rubik's Cube thing, it's just. But that even there, that takes a certain amount of strength. Like, so a girl might be able to think her way through it fast, but to execute it with the right musculature, I mean, yeah. it, it does require a physical thing. And so I really believe that even to the fine tuning of reaction time type sports like you look at darts that should be the same for men and women i don't know i don't think that they're the same because hmm. there's a there's a certain stability that a guy has in his body and does that whereas mm -hmm. if if you're a woman and you vary even slightly it's not quite as good right mm -hmm. um so you go down the list so like when i now i'm getting into my coaching because when you look at an athlete <clears throat> who has to perform a certain thing in a certain sport you're looking at all the various types of movements that are involved or demanded of them by their sport, as well as each body part and each capacity, you know, whether that's strength, outright strength, like, um, like bench press or something mm -hmm. and squat, the amount of weight you can squat or something versus no, is that going to help you or not help you? There's an interesting thing. Um, I coached the Olympic gold medalists in figure skating back in 2002 in Salt Lake City when the French judge cheated. The Canadian couple that won that gold medal in the end. Um, it was a big controversy at that time um, in Salt Lake City. It's great. But it's just so weird that this, this sport that's probably known or like the Olympics is probably known more for its controversies of yeah, unfairness exactly, right? than the actual yeah. games. Right? Well, this is going to, I wonder whether this next one is going to be the nail in the coffin because I don't see with, of all the controversies the Olympics has gone through, I don't see how they survive hmm. the viewership when people start seeing male bodies in women's sports. I'm just imagining the televisions around the world just turning off because what does it mean? I don't even know what this is in crazy. It's like a crazy circus. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is, well, I'm sorry. I distracted you from, from your anecdote about the uh, training. There's the... an interesting, there's an interesting observation about, and this speaks to the unique, uh, just the amazing thing about the human body. So, you know, all of the um, combines, like the combine in the NFL is you run the 40 meters, you do the bench press, you, you do these series of tests. So there's a combine in the NHL as well. And what one of my athletes noticed is if you go into an, a lot of NHL locker rooms in the like a skating world, um, in the hockey world, <clears throat> a lot each locker room has the list of guys who have the record for that particular <clears throat> bio, biomotor test. Okay, so the guy who bench pressed the most, the guy in their organization who squatted the most the guy who had the most speed, the guy who whatever. Mm -hmm. And most of those guys on that list are people you've never heard of before. So the interesting thing is hmm. the real superstars in the games, in the sports, um, what is it that we're actually looking for in a good athlete? Mm -hmm. So it, it's really a combination of a bunch of things. And I, I'm, I, and that's where I go into the whole thing of human elasticity and mm -hmm. your ability to be whippy, like, like, let's say like a, you know, like a pole vault pole whips. And mm -hmm. so I'm looking for other characters. I think part of what makes me successful in my coaching is I'm, 
not only looking for the greatness and those key features, it's like there's certain kinds of combinations of those movements Mm -hmm. that give you this really amazing whip that like that helps you with a slap shot or helps you with a golf swing. Like there's something about the way the human body is where when you combine all the joints and all the different kinds of movement, it actually maximizes a performance in a way that the individual measurements don't tell you, don't Mm -hmm. identify. Mm -hmm. And, and so that also, I think because of my success as a sport performance consultant in those ways, and I'm just scratching the surface here, but in, in, in the way of the insights that I've gained over in my 20 years with the professor's eye, because I'm not in academia, but I've asked the qu- questions of yeah. myself all the time. Yeah. Um, what I see is that you need measures, like measurement of strength or measurement of the cardio or measurement. It never tells you the whole story about sport. Just like height in Rachel McKinnon's world, Veronica yeah. Ivey's world, just like height doesn't tell you the whole story about the morphology. Yeah. Single biomotor measurements don't tell you the whole story about a difference in performance. Yeah. So a lot of the uh, arguments for, well, they're obfuscations of the difference between male and females. If you Mm -hmm. name anything, you say it's just chromosomes, then then they'll they'll bring the counter arguments like, Mm -hmm. well, there's a variation there and any given measurement they can twist. But in aggregate, like common sense, they're assaulting from like a thousand needles or whatever, like a thousand cuts. On yeah, all these individual planes just see so mm-hmm. ignore the elephant, just ignore the yeah, elephant. Yeah, and and so again, it's they're looking again. I guess I'm just saying that I'm seeing a simplification of a very complex system of of way the ways in which human movement is organized. Yeah, and they're making it they're they're making it ideological, and mm-hmm. they're completely missing the boat on Mm -hmm. how the execution of those two things with those different morphologies. Um, The best example even I can give you is simple, even from the world rugby results. They show that, for example, in strength, so getting back to Laurel Hubbard, Laurel Hubbard might actually have 40 to 50% advantage in strength over their, uh, over their same, same weight women, uh, but if he doesn't win, it's or if she or whatever we want to call them, if they don't win, if Laurel Hubbard doesn't win, it's it's probably just because with all that male advantage, probably just because they're not a very good athlete, but the mm-hmm. way they can execute, right? But they shouldn't be there anyway because it's not appropriate. But I'm just saying that um, the gender ideologists, ideologues who's trying to push this sort of thing into women's sports are using, they're using something like from another realm of life, like sociology versus biology. They're using something different. Not even, not even do the guys in, in the combine get it right all the time in terms of finding the best athlete. But these people are actually using something from a different realm of human experience to actually impose on sports that has nothing to do with sport. But then I was going to say that um, even with the world rugby, so getting back to that example, when they say like a male has 50% strength advantage over the bet, like if you take two of equal ability, the male will have a 50% advantage up to 50% stronger than women. But, but when it comes to punching, they're 160%. 
So what's the difference between just showing your, your strength by like, say a bench press and saying there's 50% advantage there versus a punch, which is 160% advantage right there. It tells you when you add joints into the movement. Mm -hmm. So the summation of forces, when you're going through a number of joints, a whole different set of actions, (laughs) the differences expand like the summation of the differences. Yeah. They compound. Yeah. That that very just those two distinct measures that World Rugby identified, fifty percent stronger than women in strength, but a hundred and sixty percent stronger in punching ability, tells you the whole story. It's just the whole different. It's like you're bringing your whole physique into yeah. that punch, versus just sitting there and lifting a weight. So it's the summation of the forces, the additional nature of it that is making this vast difference between males and females. And these people have no clue. These guys in the Canadian bureaucracy, it's just, I'm ashamed. I'm just ashamed. It's just so idiotic that they can't even understand what's going on in the sports, in the realm of sport that they're responsible for administrating. They have no clue what's going on in the ground. No, they're not allowed to have a clue. They can't afford to look at it. They can't afford yeah. that. They have to say equity, diversity, inclusion, equity, diversity. Inclusion. Yeah, let's just repeat. Like, just get the cue card. Repeat after me. Repeat after me. It's just like a religion. I'm telling you. It's like saying their prayers every day. Yeah, yeah. So, your book's out. Say yes. the title again so everybody can so it's get it. called it's called Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. And you can find it on unsporting.com, Amazon. You can order it through Amazon. And uh, as far as I know, it hasn't been deleted yet or censored. Um, because I don't so this think is it's this is one move. Is are there other moves? Is there any uh, organizations? Is there any uh, strategy? Hope? Yeah. Well, Rebel we Alliance have, style. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we have. Um, uh, a number of things going on. So, so save women's sports in the USA, please support them. Um, Fair play for women is in the UK. Please support them. If you can fair sports, Australia, uh, save women's sports, Australasia is a, is in New Zealand and Australia. If you're over there, support them because all of these different entities are still um, always proposing uh, um, exemptions to the general um rules and laws like that are being proposed for example Mm -hmm. fair play for women um they have pointed out that in uk law in the equality act in the uk there are specific exemption exemptions in law that where you're allowed to to exempt you know to have sex-based um spaces and and safe spaces for just female persons Mm -hmm. um the the unfortunate thing is a lot of people in the uk like the sports organizations they themselves are not taking advantage of the same-sex exemptions in law that they're allowed to to have like you and and in the book and i think it's in appendix three i actually literally list that that just to offer that as an example um beers exemptions and there's a six different things and the one that has the part four section 195 in the uk law says it is lawful to exclude people born male from women-only sporting competitions when physical strength, stamina, or physique are major factors in determining success or failure. 
This includes people who were born male, even if they self-identify as trans women and or have changed their legal sex status to female. This is necessary to uphold fair or safe competition. It's right in UK law. And yet people are not taking advantage of these exemptions that are in law. And so what I'm saying is hmm. one of the, you know, we have now a lot of groups that have popped up in Canada, like Cosbar, Canadian Women, like there's, there's all kinds of, of organizations in the States. You have the Women's Human Rights Campaign. Kara Dansky is in, in leading that effort. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of us who actually are proposing similar exemptions. Like if you want to, you know, you want to be um, kind, you know, um, and inclusion, inclusionary, there has to be s- sections in social in your life of your country where there are sex-based exemptions. And, and that's fine. Like we can have both. You can have laws that say you cannot discriminate. Like if somebody comes and gets a, to look for a job and they happen to be a male and dressed as a woman, if they're looking for a job in, in the marketplace of, of labor, of course you shouldn't bully them. You shouldn't be discriminatory. But there are sections in life, there are places mm-hmm. in life where biology and biological sex still matters. And so, you know, I don't think... It's a zero-sum game in the, in the sense of broader society. There's a way we can respect people's expression of what they want to be, but also protect certain um, areas of life that have to be separated according to biological sex to make sense and for human sort of for all of us to get along and to function properly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think you can. It's like you can do it. But, you know, I'm asking now for in this book, my my request is of the Canadian government, especially because I'm a Canadian, I'm, I'm functioning in Canada, that our government needs to include these exemptions. Why would you why would you pass a law, Bill C-16, and not think about the exemptions required that accompany that law? Mm-hmm. And I think that is what Jordan Peterson was getting at. It's like. Don't throw everybody under the bus until you think through the violations of people's rights in these other realms and not make provision for that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, you know, there's various things. I'm going to probably launch something if men want to support us instead of having, you know, we believe in bleeders, you know, or some silly thing. <laughs> I, I'm proposing something, and it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it might catch on. Um, you know, I, the the madness of how the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, changed laws in 2015 on the basis of one study involving eight trans-identified males who are recreational runners. So on the basis of an N of eight, a study of an N of eight, the entire world, imagine this, that trans woman who did that study, Joanna Harper, is sitting on the I- IOC Medical Commission back in 2013-14-15 based on that one study, and it was a very faulty study, I cover it in my book, on the basis of one study with an N of 8 published in Uncommon Ground, uh, not peer-reviewed at all, on the basis of N8 subjects who happen to be male recreational runners, the entire rules for all of the female athletes in the entire world was changed before the, on the basis of a study of eight male runners. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that 
we might come up, we're coming up with a logo N equals eight as just like a tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. you know, pushback. N equals eight. We might have a little website just sort of explaining what that means. And if you support women, sex-based, different uh, category and sport, just put N equals eight. And that's your little signal that you support us. Like, I I think it has to be something sort of not overtly triggering, you know, just N equals eight. And this is how ridiculous it is. Eight. It took eight trans-identified males to change the rules of sport for every female athlete in the world. Well, it's it's interesting. The question is, can you defeat this stuff is winning because of politeness. Can you yes. defeat it with politeness in mm. turn? The thing is we're trying, like I, I don't, even this book, even though the cover probably does kind of trigger people, that's a pretty kind book. I, I was trying very, very hard to comply with, with, um, you know, with the language of respect so that we're saying that we acknowledge that somebody can identify as something else or somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also the balancing of rights of the female person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we have to be, you know, doing the sort of riding, like you're saying in downtown Portland or I don't know, like, I don't think we have to do anything violent. I think, you know, when I see polls Well, I was just saying, and, are you allowed to even be rude? If every, if the well, truth is rude... <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I, and, and I guess that's where we get into the Posey Parker realm. Um, Kelly, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, yes, I, I totally admire her. Like, she doesn't mind being rude. I, I have that. a mixture myself. I'm, I'm polite, I'm, I'm but, rude in my own special blend. Yeah, you know, like, like here's what I say, and I think coffee. this is what everybody says. If, if it was like one-on-one, and I'm just having a heart-to-heart conversation with somebody who's trans, and they ask me to apply, you know, to respect them with a certain name or whatever, pronoun, whatever, I don't see why I should violate that. If we're just having a conversation, why would I do that? I mean, we're... You know, it's just like what Jordan Peterson says, to be polite in a one-on-one conversation, of course. If they ask politely and they're nice, why would I not do that? You you know, politeness uh, begets politeness. I mean, fine. But when it comes to policy, (laughs) when it comes to being removing back to the football field, and you're just trying to scrub out the sidelines and the end zone, you know, we're allowed to say no. We're allowed to say no way. Hell no. And, and, and the thing is, Benjamin, what I don't get about the, the males who are trying to self-identify into females, into women's sports, is that, you know, when we offer them, let's say, a third category, they don't want it because they need to be in women's sports to have that affirmation. That somehow it becomes like a social affirmation exercise. They don't want a separate category. They want to be in women's sport because they see themselves as a woman. They need it for almost like social therapy. So if it's what I don't get is that if you're going to do that for an affirmation reason, as opposed to just wanting to compete, if you're doing it for affirmation, um, first of all, it won't last long because all the women will disappear and it'll be only males affirming, seeking affirmation in the final. And they're all going to be with each other and they're not going to get affirmed anyway, because they're all going to be men. On the other hand, um, if you're saying, if you're coming into a realm 
where you hear no, like you come into sport, you can't use sport for affirmation because the sport is the one realm in life where you hear no all the time. No, you didn't make the team. No, you didn't get team captain. No, you didn't get the medal. No, 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 no. In sport, it's always, almost always about no. And very few people hear the yes, they won. So why, I just am very, I'm baffled and mystified why you would choose sports as your platform to try to do this in the first place, because Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a realm of life where no has to be heard and and accepted. There it's not, it's not that they're choosing sport. It's that this entire ideology changes everything, including sport and sport is where, well, sport and probably a couple other places are where it's most definitely runs up against reality and violates the entire structure of how that Mm -hmm. works. Uh, Then you also have the homosexual community, the gays and the lesbians and the bisexuals. Mm -hmm. They're now trying to secede from the transgender ideology because it's wrecking them. Yeah. It's wrecking, it's wrecking, uh, you know, young people's development too. So it's one thing that's just invading everything. That's a really good point, Benjamin. And here's what I would say too, is that um, the trans, it's not unified. There's a lot of, I have to acknowledge, there's a lot of trans allies that are with us in saying, we acknowledge that this isn't fair in sport. Um, And for those and for the LGB people who understand that this isn't correct, that this isn't ethical, this is not correct, it's not fair, it's not ethical, it's not safe to have a male body in women's sports. Um, Their concern is that this has gone so batshit crazy while uh, pendulum has swung so far Mm -hmm. that the response to that is going to really hurt them. Like the response isn't going to be delimited to the extreme crazy people who insist on doing this. The response is going to be like the pendulum swinging way back where it really comes back and knocks off a lot of people who are LGBTQ, who do understand the concept of fairness and safety and equitability in sports. And I, I think that is the thing I would worry about, too, is that we made great strides in the LGBTQ acceptance over this last, you know, 20 or 30 years. But because they've taken that pendulum and pushed it so far off, almost to the point of flying off the axis, axle, hmm. um, what's going to come back? How is it going to snap back? Um, I don't want to be involved in it snapping back to the point where it hurts people, right? Like really genuinely hurts gay, lesbians, bi, and everybody else. Like I, I that's part of why... Like in my advocacy, I feel like we need to actually say no soon so that we need to draw the line and speak out for sports. If sports is the tip of the spear where it's so obvious and if this is the realm where everybody's going to see the real obvious uh, problems or, or delineate sort of where the limits are to the ideology, please then let's speak up now and Mm-hmm. Um, correct, you know, course correct now so that we don't have this massive backlash against the pride movement or the like whatever else, you know, the, all the things that were good about accepting people. Um, I think that 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 could happen. We see this all the time. 
you know, we see, you know, being in Iran with those women, I had so many conversations in living rooms on a carpet talking about what happened in the 70s with their revolution. They all came out, all the university students, they all wanted to change in the democratic direction. And they got hijacked. The Iranian people wanted to have an open democratic society, but <clears throat> crazies got a hold of it and hijacked what they wanted. Hmm. And so what you end up with is something so much more oppressive and extreme than anything anybody could have imagined. Because people and didn't it's sad stand for them. up and uh, because people say didn't no, say the, like, the look out. Yeah. yeah, look out. There's this other group actually that don't represent us, but they're taking control of our movement. Yeah. yeah. And if, if we don't say something early, if we don't speak up and be honest about where the solution lies, how can we be res respectful for everybody on both sides of this, all sides of this? If we don't provide something now as a solution and as a, if nothing else, as a platform to, you know, to just express there's two sides to this story and maybe there's a solution. And I have a solution I propose in the book, which is the open and female, but you know, literally um, if we don't start talking now about where is the solution here? Mm -hmm. um, it's going to ruin a lot of things and a lot of people. And it's going, and it's so unnecessary, Benjamin, it's so unnecessary. I, I want to end on a really serious note, a call to action. So I want to sure. cut it there. <laughs> okay. Thank you that's for good. your time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fine. I appreciate it. I mean, I love talking to you and I, I should have done some sort of, I'm doing it the opposite where I just dive right into the content and I didn't, I didn't really have time to talk to you about how's your cats and how's, yeah, no, how's I, I keep the after, I keep the after party for the after. Sure. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night. <laughs>